you're ready, take your Bibles. We're about to dive into Revelation. We have been looking forward to this for several weeks. Uh, my staff knows that in, in the preparation, I, I have prepared 28 outlines uh, for Revelation. Whether we will get to all of them or not, I'm not sure, but I just need you to know we're going to be in this a while. Uh, we will make the necessary breaks when we get to Christmas and things of that nature, but there is a lot here for the church to begin to digest, especially in the day and age in which we live. And for those of you that may be watching on live stream this morning, we want to welcome you. And so if you have your Bible and you can write in it and outline in it, that's great. If you have your electronic Bible, then I hope that you have some notes that you can write alongside of that so that you can jot down things that might be important to you. But we're beginning with Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And the title of the message today is The Testimony of a Christian in Exile. The Testimony of a Christian in Exile. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, him being Jesus, to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Father, as we dive into this unbelievably fascinating book, we recognize that we do so with the help and leading of your Holy Spirit. You told us that when Christ lives within us, that the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us into all truth. And so we rely on that guidance today. I pray, Father, for those that may be living in confusion, those that are living in fear, that today would be a day that they encounter your grace in such a way that they change sides from unbelievers to believers from those outside of grace to those walking in grace, and that it would be a transforming moment for them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I really get into it, I want to just address something that is really fascinating to me. It says in the very first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus to show his servants what must soon take place. The reason I want to just highlight this for a second is because I know that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, it talks about that no one knows the day nor the hour, only the Father. And so there have been those that have felt as if Jesus doesn't know what's going to happen in the last days or that Jesus doesn't know when the end will come. I want you to know that when Jesus walked on earth during his earthly ministry, that may have been the case, but when he was resurrected from the dead and sat down on the right hand of the Father, there is no information that is kept from him, which is why we see a difference in Revelation, the very first verse when it talks about Jesus is revealing the last days to us because he's fully aware of it. And so as we begin this adventure, and by the way, this is an adventure that we are about to go on together. It's 2020, and we are in a global pandemic. There are conspiracy theories everywhere. There is social unrest that is tearing apart the large cities of our country. And on top of this, don't know if you're aware of this, but this is an election year. Every commercial is spewing hatred in ways that is unprecedented. Every, every election cycle, we, can't, we think it can't get any worse, and, and it seems to do so. And the division in our country and in our world is easy to recognize. In the middle of all that, I thought, what better time? 
to walk through Revelation together and just to take a look at what's happening. I don't believe that it's an accident that Revelation is, is the last book in the Bible. In fact, for those of you that may be just beginning your walk with Christ or those of you that, that you don't know it, but today's going to be the day of your salvation because God is at work and you're not here by accident. There is a knowledge of the Bible that leads up to this that will be helpful for you in understanding some of the things that happen here. But if you were to take Genesis and Revelation, they become a great bookend to holding the gospel of Jesus Christ together because in Genesis, you have the story of the beginning of human sin. In Revelation, you have the end of human sin recounted. In generation, there is the beginning of civilization and history. In Revelation, we learn the end of both of those. In Genesis, we learn of the beginning of the judgments of God upon mankind as a result of the fall of man and sin. And in Revelation, you see the end of them. And so these two books belong together, the beginning and the end, how things started and how they ended. And here's what I want you to know. A, a friend of mine named Jim Bradford, who pastors Central Assembly of God in Springfield, Missouri, he states it this way. There are details in Revelation that are going to be difficult. There are details that may be difficult. But the message is unmistakable. And you're going to hear that repeated throughout this. The, the details may be difficult, but the message is unmistakable. There are whole parts of messages that will be coming up that will be just trying to interpret the images that are here in the book of Revelation. And the reason for that is because Revelation is an apocalyptic writing. It is an apocalyptic book. And so it is not descriptive, it is visual. It is a visual book. And so you will have animals that are symbols of people. You will have bodies of water that are symbols of nations. You will have big dragons and funny-looking creatures with eyes all over them that you will think you're in a bar scene in a Star Wars movie as you begin to describe these things. Even the Apostle John... As he sees all of this revealed, even he doesn't understand everything that he sees because he asks several times, what does this mean? Have any of you ever read Revelation and said the same thing of God? What does this mean? And so that can throw us off as we get into the book of Revelation. Some of the details are difficult. On top of that, there's tons of numbers within this book. There's numbers like one-third, and two, and three-and-a-half, and four, and six, and seven, and a thousand, and 144,000. What do those mean? Are they literal, or are they symbolic? There will be times when, honestly, it's going to be hard for us to tell. And this works because somehow this book of the Bible has created in the church such interest that 2,000 years later, we are still talking about things like the mark of the beast. Any of you wonder about that? Have any of you given thought to the mark of the beast in the days in which we are? We're going to do our best to clear some of that up and to take away the fear of that as it relates to the church. The vivid images of the book of Revelation stimulate our imagination to the great realities of the world from God's perspective. And this is what we need to know as we dive into this book. This is not the world that we see from our perspective. It is the end times as we look at it from God's perspective. How many of you know God sees things we don't? 
and he understands things that we don't. But through it all, the message will be unmistakable. Another thing that can make the details difficult in Revelation is the order of events, the sequence. We are people, and, and particularly in our generation and as Americans, we like things in chronological order. We like sequence to things. It, it helps us understand things that happen in a right order. But I want you to understand that not everything that is listed in the chapters of Revelation is in a sequential order. We have the beginning of Revelation, and we have the ending that, start, that ends with a new heaven and a new earth. But if you read Revelation closely, it looks like the earth ends three or four times in the middle of it. And as we look at this, you will discover with me that John in his vision at times takes a zoomed-in approach to a certain thing that he's seeing, and then he will back away and take a broader view that is a little bit more of a global look at it. And so he may be describing a similar event three or four different ways, which will bring an understanding to us as we begin to see that that will help us. And so the the book of Revelation is not chronological and it's not sequential. It's more circular, actually. And again, for us that are book readers, we're going, that makes no sense to me. Well, that will help us as we get into this to bring a little bit different perspective to it. Interesting enough, the theological center of the book of Revelation is chapter 12, which ironically happens on Christmas Eve. And for those of you that may have attended our church for a couple of years, you'll notice a year ago or a year and a half ago at Christmas Eve, I preached out of Revelation a Christmas Eve message because it fits so well there. But so if you look at Revelation 12 as being a Christmas Eve, that happens well, well before Revelation chapter 11. And so if you look at this sequentially, you're going to be confused. But if you look at it in a little bit of a circular way, it may help us. And so... I just want you to, to not be confused because it will throw off some things that happen uh, in, when you look at Revelation if you believe that everything happens sequentially. Daryl Johnson says this, remember, as you read Revelation, the question is not what happens next, the question is what did John see next? The question is not what happened next, the question is what did John see next? In fact, there are 40 times when John will say, I saw. He is recounting a vision of what he saw. And as it is that John sees, he, he begins to put together shapes of the structure of the book of Re Revelation, but not necessarily what happens next. And so of all of the images and of all of the order of the book, it can lead us to asking questions like this. What does this all mean? What is part that makes Revelation for us so exciting as 21st century Western world readers as we look at this, if you understand it, that it's not necessarily chronological, it can begin to open doors for us to understand this a little bit better. And I will say this again and again, the details may be difficult, but the message is unmistakable. And so let's start. Point number one, the setting of Revelation. The book was written at a time of intense persecution to the church by the Roman Emperor Domitian. It was written at about 95 AD. It was written at a time when 
the book of Acts as we know it, that season of the church had ended. And rather than now affecting their whole world, Christians were under intense persecution and had fallen in disfavor with the government and the populace at large. So you have this group of people, Christians, located in a place in Asia, and, and they call it Asia. Today it would be located in what we know as a Turkey. And John is writing this letter to these persons, these Christians, in some of the cities of the Roman province of Asia. And Christians were so unpopular at the time that a great deal of antagonism was being pointed toward them. In fact, Christianity was an illegal religion at this particular time. It was illegal in the sense that Romans expected anybody that they conquered or any subjugated people would automatically give up their gods and go along with them because if their god was more powerful than the Roman gods, they would not have been defeated in the first place. And so they looked at Christians saying, you need to give up your gods and accept ours because our God obviously is more powerful than yours. And so the fact that the Christians at that time were exclusive and would not give up their God because they saw things differently than the Romans did, they were under intense hatred. In fact, Christianity was a rival to the Roman gods because Christianity is exclusive. And as a result of that, the Christians at the time would not uh, would not participate in the social customs or the religious practices of the people. Christians, wherever there were groups of them together, came into conflict with the commercial and the economic interests of the time. For example, if you were an idol maker and Christianity began to grow in popularity, you recognize Christians don't have idols. So they're not buying the little carvings that I'm making or the little statues that I make. And so it affects my bottom line. So if we can do away with Christianity, my bottom line goes up. If you were a priest at the temple where sacrifices were, were offered, if Christianity begins to arise, then you're going to affect my bottom line because you're not buying the animals that you need to go in and sacrifice. But where Christianity most ran into trouble during this particular time was with the government because they refused to worship the emperor. Domitian was reigning at the time of the writing of this letter and he had taken his divinity very, very seriously. In fact, he gave orders that when he and his wife showed up in a crowd to attend the theater or at the Colosseum gathering, the crowd was expected to arise and shout in unison, all hail to our Lord and His Lady. And encompassed within that term, our Lord is all hail our God and His Lady. It definitely meant God. And He informed all of the provincial governors and the announcements and the proclamations that were sent out in the name of the government were to begin with, Our Lord and our God Domitian commands. And anyone addressing Him in a speech or whether they came before Him had to call Him God or Lord. And so as this vision of John that we look at as the revelation of Jesus Christ, you, we begin to understand the social and the political and the religious setting in which this book emerges. Now, I don't know about you, but it's a little difficult for me not to see some parallels. In the world in which we live and the world in which Revelation was written, as we look at John, John is the last 
living survivor of the apostles. By this time, he probably is 96 to 97 years old. He's an old man. He's exiled as a work slave on the island of Patmos. And it's a small island that's kind of crescent-shaped with a high point in the middle of it that he could look and, when it's clear, could see the mainland of what was then Asia and the churches that he was going to write to. But in the course of this exile, as he is sitting on this island, God begins to reveal to him some things from God's vantage point. And, and he is addressing the churches in Asia. These are churches that he had either started or he had pastored or he was acquainted with. And he can't reach them now because this body of water separates him from them. And as we start into this book, it's interesting to note this. Revelation is the only book in the Bible that starts with a blessing and ends with a warning. Starts with a blessing, ends with a warning. Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads the word of this prophecy. And blessed are those that hear it. And take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. We are going to be blessed as we go through this and read it and hear it. The warning, however, is interesting because it comes in the last chapter in Revelation 22:18, when it says this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes words away from the prophecy of this book, God will take away from his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So we put the blessing and the warning together as we start this, and here's what Revelation is saying to us, essentially. Watch out, because this book will redefine your life. Watch out, because the potential of what God is revealing to us can redefine your life because at the center of it is the sovereignty and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ himself. Which moves us to our second point. It is revealed to open our eyes. Why, why do we have the book of Revelation? Because there are things that God wants us to know. He tells us in the first three verses that he has received this revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation in Greek is apocalypse. It's an, the word literally means apocalypse. It literally means to take away from hiding or to remove the veil that has been covering it. And so we begin to look at this and we see the first thing about this book when we open it is that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not called the hiding of Jesus Christ. It's not called the mystery of Jesus Christ. It's not called the puzzle of Jesus Christ. It's called the unveiling, the unhiding, the revealing of Jesus Christ. It is a book which unveils and we are going to see Jesus disclosed in it in a magnificently beautiful way. There's nothing about this book that is intended to be hidden but is intended to reveal Jesus Christ. So Revelation is meant to open our eyes to something that had been hidden but now is being unveiled. And Jesus Christ is unveiling this knowledge that he might show his servants, as he said, what must soon take place. Now in that word must literally means a necessity. And in that, we come to understand that God is in control of history. 
He is going to bring it to an end himself. This is not haphazard. We're not just floating along with things just happening. When we come to this phrase, what must soon take place, or we read in verse 3, the time is near, we look at that and say, well, what are we to think about that? How, how are we supposed to respond to that? Because obviously we look at the text and, and John seems to be saying that the coming of Christ is expected at any moment. That this could happen at any moment. But I want you to understand that John is revealing this and we are 20 centuries removed from that first thought. And we're looking at this and we as the church today still say, you better be ready, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. And so we look at this, what does it mean by this? This is really important, so, so please try to grasp this with me. There are those who approach the book of Revelation in what I call a calendarized approach. In other words, they read it and they want to locate within the book where we are in history. They look at it and say, okay, I'm reading the, the book of Revelation and I want to know how I can find myself, my generation, where do we fit within all this? And so they read it in terms of current events. So they turn on the news and they hear the news and then they run to Revelation and try to find where are we at in the middle of all of this. But here's the danger of that. You know, for my parents and grandparents, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, they had a field day when Mussolini and Hitler became in power because they're all running to Revelation and they're trying to calendarize it, going, this is the one, this is the person, this is the, you know, and, we, and it would have fit well. But we are now decades past that. And so if we approach Revelation from a calendarized approach where we listen to the news, by the way, I would ask you to limit yourself listening to the news. But if you listen to the news and then run to Revelation, you will find yourself trying to calendarize something that I do not, do not believe it was meant to do that. So everybody who has tried to calendarize the book has run into the same problem. What then do we do with Jesus who says, I'm coming soon? Were the early Christians mistaken? Or was it stated so that every generation of Christianity would always live with the attitude that Jesus is coming soon? So here is that sense of immediacy being projected by the believers. Jesus is coming soon. But let me just point something out to you. And we're going to do this often as we go through this book. I'm going to take the Greek word that we assume to mean one thing. I'm going to expand on all of the meanings that it could mean as we begin to apply it. And here's one of those. The word soon in the Greek language is used also to be understood in a different way besides just immediately. It also means suddenly. And so as we look at this particular verse with that in mind, it's not so much that Jesus is coming soon, even though I believe he could come at any minute. But when he comes, he's saying, what's going to happen in the end times is going to be sudden. When it happens, it's going to be quick. When it happens, it's going to take place, and people might not have expected it to happen, but it's going to happen suddenly. And everything that I will accomplish, I'm going to accomplish all at once. And so one of the key messages to Revelation is that, and this is important, God is not going to let sinful infection, which is brought into the world and into the fold of the world, destroy the temple of his creation that he has built. He is telling mankind, 
I am not giving humans the option of closing down the history of time. Our world is not going to be destroyed by a nuclear holocaust. God is saying, our world is not going to give up the ability to sustain life because of environmental issues or climate change. He said, I am not going to let man conclude history on their own terms. Man is not the final say of creation. Our world will have a period put on human history and put on human uh, civilization, but it will not be by man. It will be none other than Jesus Christ himself who declares to us, I am in total control of everything. Therefore, we understand he is coming soon. It could be any minute, but he's coming suddenly. And when he does, things are going to happen all at once. It's going to be speedy. So he says, he's coming soon. He's coming quickly. And interesting enough, that word, we get our word tachometer from. Now, I know I've seen some of you drive. And there are those of you here today that you see a speed limit sign and you said, that's merely a suggestion. And some of you, specifically when you're buying cars, ask, how fast will this go? Because you have a lead foot. And some of you get on open roads when you don't think you're being watched. And you floor it. And you slam the accelerator down and that tachometer that's on your board goes wild because instantly there's something that takes place there. And I want you to look at Revelation in the same way. There's coming a moment when somebody is going to put their foot on the accelerator of human history and the tachometer is going to go crazy as the end time events begin to come together. And then John says, he describes himself in this as a faithful witness who gives testimony. Now, witness is a really important word in Revelation because in the same word that witness comes from the, from the Greek, we get our word martyr. But you need to know that martyr in that time did not mean one who gave their life up for the cause of Christ. And in that time, martyr meant one who was willing to die for what they believed. I'm willing to die for my beliefs or what I saw. So John is saying in this, I am standing by the testimony of what I saw. Even to the fear of death, I will overcome that for this. Which brings us to the third point today as we get to verses 4 and 5. Greetings from the triune God. John, to the seven churches that are in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of kings. Now, we know by a geographical study that there were more than seven churches that were in Asia at the time, but what was interesting is the churches that he chose, and we will be getting into this, really form almost a circle in their geography. In other words, there was a completeness that, that what he was writing to those seven churches, he would continually say, let him who has an ear, let, let him who has the spirit dwelling within us. And how many of you know that when we come to Christ, we have knowledge that others don't have? 
The Spirit of the Lord speaks to us, and He's going, let the Spirit speak, and you who have an ear, listen to what He is saying, because there's application in all of this for all of us. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit, meaning it's not just to the seven, but there's a completeness to this that's going to be to churches everywhere. And then he says this. The content of the greeting is really fascinating. Grace and peace to you. These are beautiful words. In fact, they're very similar to what Paul speaks of when he writes. But here's what's interesting is the way that they're written and the order in which they're written. Grace establishes peace. You never have in the New Testament the words peace and grace. It is always grace and peace. Grace speaks of what God has done. God speaks of our standing in His presence. Grace speaks of our standing in His presence. But peace represents our experience. And so what he is saying at the very beginning, grace and peace to you is grace is your standing before the Lord. Peace is what you experience because of your standing. And I love the way he starts this. In other words, there's nothing for you to fear who are in Christ. Now, if you're here and you're not in Christ, this is not going to be a good lesson for you. But if you are in Christ, because of his grace, we have peace. What a great way to start this book. Because of his grace, we have peace. And he gets into this and he says... John identifies who's giving this greeting. The churches are being greeted by God the Father... Grace and peace to you. And he says, from him who was and who is and is to come. This phrase comes straight out of Exodus 3.14 when God reveals himself to Moses as I am who I am. And you know, I, I love this part because it's just God is saying to us, you want to know who I am? You want to know what my name is? I am who I am. That is, I choose who I am. You don't have the ability as a mortal man or as a society to classify me or to categorize me or to put me into a dictionary or to use any term of me. He says, I am not the man upstairs. I am who I am. I will be who I will be, and I will be praised. Ultimately, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess. And so the Father states immediately in this greeting, don't put me in a box. Because there is no box big enough to contain me. And he goes from that aspect of the Trinity of the Father bringing greetings to the Spirit when he says this. From the seven spirits who were before the throne. Now we look at that and we're going, well, that, that seems a little weird. There's the first number that's involved, seven spirits. Why that? I believe that John is reaching back from what he is seeing. And perhaps he's giving a description because in, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it says this. Where the Spirit is identified as the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. How many were just described there? Seven. So what John is seeing in his vision is not the Holy Spirit divided. He is seeing the separate ministries of the Holy Spirit in unity at work before the Father. And so the New Testament, oftentimes the Spirit is referred to as a singular but he's referred to here as a plural because in this instance, he is going to speak something different to each aspect of those churches. But what he wants them to know is the Spirit is in unity. In other words, we have experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit here this morning. 
It's happening in the same place in other churches around town and in our state and in our nation and in our world. The Holy Spirit in unity is ministering separately all over the place and doing different things. And so when he speaks of the Spirit and the seven spirits, he's speaking of the fact that there are different ministries of the Spirit. And then he said, so greetings, not only from the Father, greetings from the Spirit. And then he brings greetings from Jesus, the Messiah, who is identified here as the faithful witness. And he outlines that he's the firstborn of the dead. In other words, this is, this is hopeful language to a church that is facing the opportunity that they may have to die for what they believe in. He's the firstborn from the dead. In other words, the things that he has gone through in his resurrection are promised to you who follow him. And so under penalty of death and under fear of their government, the, the churches in Asia had determined that they were going to refuse to deny Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is reminding them himself, you win in the end. You win. And so John sends the message to them that things aren't what they seem. Here's what's fascinating. Because this is just as important today as it was then. God in Revelation is putting on notice every leader, every governor, every ruler, every king, every president on earth that are causing so much trouble to Christians. And he is saying to them, you think that you are in control. You think that you have authority. You think that you can determine how things will end, but I want you to know that you are under my control. And the rulership of Jesus Christ is made possible only because of his resurrection, because of the fact that he has been a faithful witness. And so at the very outset, we come to an understanding that we as the church see things the world doesn't see because we know he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's the governor of governors. He's the mayor of mayors. None sits above him. He is in total control of everything that is happening in the world. And power has not been ripped out of his almighty hand. 